Welcome to On the Table, a podcast about board games, card games, and tabletop war games. Hey, it's Chase from On the Table Gaming, and today we're talking with, I think I can say, the legendary Will Hungerford, a lead game developer at Broken Anvil Miniatures. And Will, thanks so much for coming on. Of course, of course. The legendary, man, that worries me so much because I don't know if the legends are good ones or bad ones. But... <laughs> I didn't say notorious. It's a pleasure yeah. in a great way. And even okay. I say, uh, you know, legendary because I think you, you have a, a legacy um, that has uh, had a wide-reaching impact on the, the wargaming community, um, you know, from your time being a, a community-organized uh, play developer, developer up mm-hmm. through being a game designer on some, you know, really well-known games. This is War Machine and Hordes, Monster Apocalypse, Riot Quest. And then, of course, what we're going to be talking about today, um, your, uh, your upcoming game, Rivenstone. Um, yes. And so, you know, before we dive into to Rivenstone, I guess maybe what, what about Wargaming uh, speaks to you so much? I mean, it's, it's where I started. I started playing games. I'm 42 now. I started playing <laughs> tabletop games when I was like 10, 11, 12. I can never exactly remember what age it is, but the first three games I played were Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Warhammer, uh, I think it was Rogue Trader, uh, and oh, nice. um, Magic the Gathering. Those are my my three starter things that, that introduced me to the world of tabletop gaming and, and sucked me in. Um, I love all three for different reasons, but Wargaming has had a special place in my heart because it's a hobby that doesn't just happen at the table. You and I don't just interact while we're sitting there actually playing the game. It's something that we are talking about beforehand. We're talking about after we, you know, there's so much investment put into it that, you know, you can be engaged with other people in the community and, and honestly never even play a game. It's just check out this miniature I painted. You think it was cool. Hey, I want to build an army on write some tactics. Let's go back and forth. And then of course, one of my favorite things, especially in my college years was, you know, we'd go to the game shop, you know, a couple times a week we'd play, and then it was the post game. Let's go grab a beer, get some food and talk about all the mistakes we made. <laughs> and just like the post game chat, some of my best friendships that I still have to today are built around that. Uh, so for me, what always drew me in was the, the, the community and how just it, it just spreads into every facet of your life, basically. Yeah. I think, you know, we're roughly around the same age. And I, I think a lot of those experiences you hinted at are, are uh, I think, that speak to me as well. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think in the past few years, it's been really hard to ignore the impact that the pandemic had that we went through. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Broken Anvil Miniatures was sort of forged, it sounds, somewhat recently in that sort of fire. Um, yep. And for me, it made me realize how much there is to the hobby. I was still able to paint miniatures. I was still able to, um, you know, talk to people online and explore things like that. But mm-hmm. I, the the in person gaming part that was suddenly like kind of missing, I, I realized, uh, you know, what a big part of the of the hobby that is still to me, and and how much I missed it. And so I'm kind of wondering as we get in here to talk about Rivenstone in just a second, like, did the uh, the pandemic and maybe having things kind of the, the norms sort of break and the way we traditionally interact with games that like kind of go on pause. Um, mm-hmm. Did that make you think about certain aspects of the wargaming hobby differently? And when you were making Rivenstone, were you thinking we really want to make sure that we are, are doubling down on certain things that maybe we're not getting to enjoy right now? I mean, what, it, so I would usually it sounds to me and impacts me personally first, and then I can mm-hmm. think of that in a broader sense. So obviously, you know, COVID impacts all of us. We went through the lockdowns. I was, I'm an extrovert at heart. So not being around people <laughs> was driving me crazy. Not being able to go to the game store was driving me crazy. Um, and 
So when things started getting a little bit out of lockdown to where it was like kind of safe to see small bubbles of people, immediately we had like a gaming club set up where we weren't going to store anymore. We figured out whose house we were going to go to. And we still every week go over there now and play. <laughs> um, and a big part of that was making sure that we had access to everything that we needed, including like organized play. Sometimes organized play can be gated to store only, which is a great thing. Supporting local mm-hmm. stores is super important, but you know, it, it helped me rethink of in the future, say we put out an organized play kit. Obviously, we want to support stores for it first. But then I got to think of markets uh, like, you know, in Europe where retail stores are done a little bit differently. It's more like gaming clubs, making sure everybody has equal access to everything to be able to bring people together, no matter what the, their circumstances are, whether it's the local club, somebody's house or, you know, preferably the store. But it, it, it nailed that home. When I had my store taken away from me, I was like, mm-hmm. How do people live like this. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> well, so, you know, let's, let's get into talking about uh, Rivenstone a little bit. A brief overview, like, what is the setting of Rivenstone? Like, why are we fighting? Why, what's going on here? Absolutely. And I'll try and keep things quick for everybody. Yeah. Um, so Rivenstone's a high fantasy setting. And when I say high fantasy, I mean um, Final Fantasy high fantasy, World of Warcraft, high fantasy, battle chasers, high fantasy. Uh, you're going to have people with, you know, um, guns fighting people with magic swords, uh, that kind of stuff. There's not like straight up vehicles, you know, because people rolling around in tanks or anything like that, but <laughs> it is that like, you know, if you saw someone with a gun sword, which an entire faction, all of their weapons have firearms in them. So gun swords are not uncommon, but it's that level of fantasy. The, the core concept of the world is that magic is not an ethereal energy that you can't, um, you, you can't see the wizards pl- pluck out of thin air. It, it is a physical thing. It grows in big crystal deposits called Rivenstone. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, all of the societies and, and nations and cultures of the world, you, Rivenstone would sort of grow in the wild. People would go harvest it and they would use it for everything from casting spells to fuel, to technological advances, to religious reasons, whatever. Um, obviously somebody had to screw everything up. So, <laughs> Uh, a group of humans knows the augers decide, hey, if everyone's benefiting, if we go get all the world's Rivenstone, we can experiment on it and we can find a way to sort of push everyone further at like speeds they've never seen before. Like we're going to unlock the secrets of Rivenstone. And they did. Um, the problem is they ascended to another plane of existence and uh, all the Rivenstone exploded in the process. Uh, so they basically caused a global cataclysm in their own um, success. So this caused the Riven Storm. All the crystal uh, became like a weather pattern, effectively. And for the last 400 years, magic has been just circulating around the world, raining down chaos everywhere. So this isn't post-apocalyptic. Let me say that now. This is a world where like some places untouched, some places decimated, some places mutated. Like you can find floating islands. You can find a place where the, the trees are sentient and are talking, whatever it is. And the crux of the conflict in the game is the storm has finally abated and is uh, now like sort of like magma from a volcano cooling back into rock. The crystals are starting to grow back. And so everyone is kind of peeking out from their safe havens and their their shelters and going, okay, we got to go out and get it now because there's sort of this global arms race of, well, whoever gets the Rivenstone and gets access to it is going to be in the best position as we sort of rebuild things. So you play one of any number of uh, coalitions going out into the unknown wilderness of what the world used to be and fighting over Rivenstone deposits. Um, There's a lot of really unique factions and every faction, it's sort of their take on 
how they approached the the conflict and what the Rivenstone did to them. Um, for example, one of our good guy factions is the undead faction. Um, the undead, the risen, um, were trying to march towards the augers to stop them from their experiment. They're like, this is going to go wrong and we have to stop them. And no one would listen. And they gathered this big army and they were marching across the continent. And when the storm erupted, they got caught in the middle of it and it killed them all. They all just died. And two centuries go by. They're just laying there, just skeletons in the in the grass. <laughs> and another storm passes over and it just animates them all. And so they get back up and they're like, well, what is happening? So it's complete chaos and no one knows what's going on. But their leader sort of gathers them together and goes, okay, okay, this is fine. We're going to figure this out. And like so you're describing, I'm thinking of like Army of Darkness, the panic skeletons. Like, let's get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> like what's going on? Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> their, their original cultures, like noble knights, that was like barons and baronesses oh, and like chivalrous knights and stuff. Yeah. Now they're all undead. So they've had to become necromancers by necessity, not because hmm. they want to. They've had to learn the dark arts and deal with dark creatures because it's the only thing that will talk to them without attacking them on sight. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so they need Rivenstone. They're trying to get all the Rivenstones regrowing because they need it to fuel the magic because they're trying to undo what happened to them. So for them, it's a point of like, hey, I don't want to be undead for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and so every faction has this like really, you know, unique take on what did the, what did the storm do to us? And why are we now going to go try and get what is a effectively irradi irradiated magic rock that caused this cataclysm and why do we deserve to have it and no one else does. And so, you know, as these forces are trying to gather this, we know, what does that look like as it translates onto the table here? Now, are we talking massed armies? Uh, this is a, at its heart, a skirmish game, right? And how many yeah. miniatures are we seeing? And what does like maybe a group or war band look like? Um, yeah. Number wise, your, your average game is eight to 15 models. Um, and the idea is nobody can muster the grand armies anymore. Uh, well, they can, but not to go out into the wild where the Rivenstone is growing. Because going out in the wilderness is super dangerous because nobody knows. You know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, there used to be a lake and some mountains over there. But for all we know, now the mountains have teeth and can talk <laughs> and can eat us. Or the whole place is just poison. Like it's just, you know, toxic. We don't know. Or it could be fine. So they basically spend, send out expedition forces to mm -hmm. go and mark the Rivenstone and get it back and that's what you play you play a war band of like the mightiest heroes and the, the strongest soldiers and and specialists that go out there so it's eight to 15 models it plays on a three by three board the idea being that you are fighting at the point where the ribbon stone is growing and um no matter what scenario you play a key aspect of the game is in addition to whatever terrain you put on the board the scenario dictates where you have to put ribbon stone deposits on the board and these are actual terrain features because the game has two primary resources, um, vigor and shards. Vigor is sort of the fighting stamina of your force, and you spend it and get it back every turn to use, you know, very powerful effects. But Rivenstone shards are literally shards of Rivenstone. Your models can run up and mine off the deposits, which let you unlock the most powerful abilities. So it's a war game where part of it is also resource management. Sometimes you might want a soldier be like, I need my soldier to run up on this objective and then kill these guys. But instead, I'm going to spend his entire activation to go to this deposit and mine it so he can get Rivenstone shards so that my wizard can cast a very powerful spell. And so okay. you're, you're, you're managing a couple different things in the game. Oh, and that sounds fantastic. I think it's like, uh, and, and maybe can you speak as well? I was looking through the rules of this um, to the idea of like the barracks as well. Yeah. So 
let me go over some of the key differences if you're going to play this game. Um, and I'll hit some real fast bullet points. So it is alternating activation game where we are playing um, groups. Your groups are broken down. Your warband is broken down into heroes, um, followers, and barracks. Um, your average game is two heroes, three groups of followers, and one barracks. Um, when you activate, usually you activate like one hero, one group of followers. Then your opponent does the same. Or maybe you'll do a hero and your barracks. You're always doing two categories of things. Okay. And you can never do the same category twice. Mm-hmm. When you activate heroes, you do that hero, they activate, they make their attacks, they cast their spells, they use their abilities, whatever it is. When you activate a follower group, you activate X number of models, you know, three soldiers, three snipers, whatever it might be. Um, and you have a barracks. This is basically a temporary spot that your group has set up, some kind of structure or summoning circle or anything that lets them call in reinforcements from back home because they're this little group. And so the barracks has a respawn mechanic. Because you're playing with such a low quantity of models, the game doesn't end. You can't get tabled in this game. And um, to speak to that, this is not a game of attrition. This is a game of tempo. So anybody who plays traditional attrition-based war games that doesn't work in this. This is a game about, I'm going to put myself in the better position. I'm going to push you off of what I'm trying to do. I'm going to hold my ground. But as things get plinked off, you can bring them back. They just cost you basically an entire activation group to do so. And your barracks is stationary. It's usually back in your deployment zone. So you push them from wherever they were on the, the table all the way back to the start. So it's more tug of war than it is grinding somebody down. Hmm. Um, and what that means is, first off, if you paint a beautiful model, you're going to get to play with it, even if it's sniped top of one. Right, because that's the matter. rule, right? <clears throat> Whenever you bring a new painted model, it's the first thing that always dies. You're like, well. <laughs> yeah, it's you're going to get to play with it. Uh, the second thing is you, you have to start thinking of the game in a little bit, you know, like I grew up on Warhammer. Obviously, I've worked on War Machine. I've worked mm-hmm. on a lot of war games that we think of in a very specific, like, I take this thing out. Now that threat is gone for the rest of the game. You know, I right. took out your thing that can harm this type of infantry. And in this you're you can't, what you are, is you're taking away opportunities and activations from them because the game is set for so many rounds, so many turns, and then that's it. And you see who, who won mm-hmm. to speak to that. The game is completely scenario driven. There's a, there's a wide variety of scenarios. There's balanced one V one scenarios. There's asymmetrical scenarios uh, in the organized play. We're going to introduce co-op raid scenarios, but you you pick a scenario. The scenario says the game lasts this long. Then you pick an event deck. So the scenario might be, this scenario is called machinations. It says our groups have found an old piece of machinery that used to mine Rivenstone. So now we're fighting over these machines to pull the shards out. That's our scenario. Mm-hmm. And the event deck is things like the Tale of Storms, the Tale of Winter, the Tale of Shadow. It's the environmental effects of what is happening, where we are, and they're all modular. So you go, we're playing in winter on the machine, or we're playing in the realm of shadow over, you know, crumbling ruins. Oh, man. Um, The event deck tells you how long each round lasts. So scenario is number of rounds the game is over. Event deck is how, how many turns you get per round. The thing that first player, second player advantage in a game like this, especially with response, could be really strong. So the offset to that is... At the end of each activation, I activate my two things before I pass priority back to you. Um, some of the Rivenstone shards, they erupt. So everyone gets a free chance to get a few of them, even if you didn't mind, and you roll a shard die. Tells you how far away they erupt and how many shards pop out. It's a 12-sided die. Um, nine of those facings say one shard comes out. 
two of those facings say two shards come out and one facing says none. However many shards pop out is how much the turn counter for the round increases. Uh, so say we're playing a six turn round and we're playing for three rounds. Okay. So on average, there should be 18 turns. I should get nine. You should get nine. I take the first turn. I go with my guys. I roll the die one. Cool. You do the same thing. You roll one. I roll on my next, my third turn. And I roll doubles. Now the turn marker goes from two to four. And now there's two turns left before the round ends. Let's say you go and you roll a double round ends. Um, What that creates is a layer. The game has some RNG in it. And that is the biggest point of it. And that is specifically so that you can never go, okay, I know I'm getting the last turn. So the last turn, I just break the objectives. I just run up on them. Um, There's not double turns for people that are familiar with Age of Sigmar. So whoever went last in the previous round doesn't go first in the next round. So okay. it's not like you right. roll the double and then you get to go again. Right. Um, so that's a big aspect of the game. And I guess the third major point is how you actually win. And it's something that's a little bit, I don't want to say hundred percent unique, but it's, it's something the players really enjoy. So at the end of the game, after all the rounds are done, whoever has the most victory points wins. But victory points are scored three ways. Hmm. First, every hero has a certain amount of victory points that are worth every time they die. More powerful heroes are worth more. So you can try and kill the opponent heroes and farm them for victory points. And they will respawn because you need those heroes. (laughs) Which is point two, every hero has a special ability on their stat card, which is effectively their quest that says, when they activate, if they do a certain thing that is unique to their character, you score victory points. Um, for some of them, might be killing so many enemy models, maybe mining right. a stone, maybe doing something with an objective, whatever it may be. And then the third is the scenario. The scenario has objectives and different things to score victory points. So you have a three-pronged approach to how you want to win the game. The heroes you choose in your list are kind of saying part of what your strategy is. If you choose yep. these two heroes and they, they're killy, then you're a killy force. If you pick two <laughs> heroes that are controlly and want to sit on objectives and not let anyone near it, then you're a controlly force and you can mix and match, obviously. Um, so your heroes are dictating things, then killing their heroes as points and then playing the objective. And you can play games where you ignore one of those three. You can go, I'm going to try and do what my heroes want to do. And I'm going to try and kill your heroes. And I'm just going to ignore the objectives. Um, the best path to victory is trying to juggle all three. Um, but I've seen plenty of people that, that try and just go really hard and go, my list kills. I can't hold <laughs> objectives. I'm nothing but a glass cannon. There's I'm always that guy in things. the group, right? In the gaming group. That's like, yeah. well, I just, just point me in the right direction. I want to kill stuff. Yeah. There's always the mono red player, but, and <laughs> yeah. that's one of the reasons the tempo based and not the attrition based and the respawn mechanic works is because you can be mono red in this game. You can go, I just murder and I score points off murdering. And then I hope that you don't go over there and win the scenario. Because at the end, it's just who had the most points. And that's been really fun for players. That's fantastic. Oh, uh, so, uh, you know, not to make it too much about me here, but, uh, you know, so if I wanted to pick a faction here, um, mm-hmm. generally I like playing the good guys here. Um, and now you threw my head all spinning here with the, the Risen being uh, good, because I usually stay away from the kind of creepy. And I have a I have a friend that I often play with who always goes for, like, the creepy, evil bad thing and i usually go for the more like nature protector like rugged individuals in a song of ice and fire the well, game i play the free folk you know they're the rugged outdoorsy people uh i have an answer for you then okay 100%. all right <laughs> let me let me do a quick rundown on list construction um and the difference between faction and coalition and then let me take okay. the factions sounds good so when you play the game 
you and your opponent decide we're playing a two-hero game or a three-hero game, and that's the only sizes of the game. It's either two heroes, three followers, and a barracks, or three heroes, four followers, and a barracks. Okay. Every There are no point values in the game. So what you hmm. do first is you pick your heroes, because more powerful heroes are worth more victory points when they die. That is effectively their cost. So you can have a, a hero that only gives up one VP every time it dies, and it's going to be much weaker than the hero that gives up seven VPs every time it dies. That's one of the balancing factors. Then every hero has followers they unlock. That's keyworded. And they'll say, you know, this, this risen hero unlocks risen undead soldiers and risen undead scouts. So then you look at all the followers you own and you go, does this follower have those keywords? If so, I may take them with this hero. And so if I take two heroes, one that unlocks risen undead soldiers and scouts and one that unlocks um, risen snipers, mm -hmm. then I can only take my follower pool is now only risen undead soldiers, scouts, and snipers. And let's say there's risen trappers and, right. and berserkers. I don't have access to those. Oh, okay. So you pick your heroes and then you pick your coalition and your coalition is hero gated. The coalitions may say, if all of your heroes are risen, you may take this one. Or it may say if all of your heroes are undead or if all of your heroes are machines, because there are cross-faction coalitions uh, coming where it's things that have similar interests where they, they're stuck out in the wild and they have to work together. And so most heroes have three or four keywords. And while we have the factions, it's more what coalition do you play than what faction do you, would you play? The okay. faction creates a gameplay and aesthetic glue, but the coalition is your overall tactics and, and strategy glue. Um, I mean, it already sounds like there's so many like levers that you can pull for balancing and making also just like really interesting gameplay. Um, yes. Oh, it sounds amazing. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's, the, that's what's so exciting is the designer and, and working on it is, yeah. is that is, is figuring these things out. But, you know, obviously people tend to gravitate towards factions and that's what lets people say, like you said, I like the rugged outdoorsy folks mm -hmm. for everyone was saying. We went through the Risen. Um, real fast, there's a faction called Wild. Wild is our catch-all. Wild is for where we put things that don't really fit in all the other ones. It's a giant potpourri. So elementals, mercenaries, mutated dragons. That's wild. Um, then you've got the Oryx. So the Oryx were one of the races of Orcs on this world who survived the Rivenstorm in the wilds. They just mm -hmm. lived outdoors during it all. And so they've become giant hulking brutes, but they're not dumb. They're not savage. They're actually very smart and very wise. Um, but they learned to tame all of the mutated beasts that started existing in the wilds, and they go to war with them. So they'll ride like giant saber-toothed tigers Weep. that have scales <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, their MO is they're going to destroy all the Rivenstone. They hmm. see all these people coming out of their little cities, and they're like, nope, we're not doing this again. So they run up to Rivenstone deposits, and they break it apart. And then the shards still infuse them with a little bit of magic in the process. But... They they don't want it at all. They're just like, nope, this we're down. <laughs> um, so they're kind of good guys in that sense. Uh, that's um, amazing. Okay, so then so <clears throat> so just to clarify, then so you're talking about that's sort of the faction. Then you're saying the coalitions are really what you're playing. So you'd yes. mentioned wild before, which is sort of a catch-all faction. But then yes. I could have a coalition with oryx and wild components together. Yes. It, it, oh, so okay. exactly. Some of the Oryx heroes have the beast keyword. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of them that are riding beasts and they have the beast keyword. So one of the coalitions coming out in the second wave of models is called wild predators. And it says all of your heroes must either be wild models or have the beast keyword. Oh. And so that says I can take this wild 
thing hero. And then I can take my, I could take Tor the Huntmaster, this big orc riding a giant saber fang tiger. And he could be my second hero. And then the, the models they unlock will still keep, create a cohesive looking warband on the table, but you're pulling mm-hmm. from the wild faction and the orcs faction at the same time. Um, you know, oh, this makes it awesome because you can get so many cool toys then and you're not always like locked in. You can be like, oh, there's always something cool out there. Well, yeah. And to before we talk about the factions, that's one of the things we want to solve. You know, I there's a lot of war games I play and I love, you know, Necromunda, Kill Team, yeah. uh, tons of other skirmish games. And the one thing that can be a little bit of a draw on some skirmish games is when you, you can only play like your certain faction. Right. And so you see a super cool model that comes out for another faction. You're like, I don't want to build a whole nother war band or gang or whatever, just to play that one model. Mm-hmm. So now with our system, it could be buy a hero that you like, or the followers, you know, and the followers to go with them. You're done. And then slot it into your, just find the coalition that this works with and slot it together and you're good. And every coalition comes with a benefit. You get a bonus to your army, like a very distinct gameplay bonus that um, really informs a lot of your tactics and your strategy. There is a like uh, allies of desperation and convenience coalition that says take whatever, but you get (laughs) no bonus. And it's just like the, the narrative of that one is like, your backs were up against the wall and you had to work with a hated enemy to, to survive. And so there's no real synergy or strategy there, but if you want to put your two models together, that don't really make sense to be there. You can. Um, so if you buy that way, you're like, this, I just have to buy this and paint this mini. And then you're like, all right, I, I can use it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It just, we wanted people to be able to have fun with their toys no matter what. See, and I think that's, uh, I know there's more fa- Actually, Let's, let's hit what, what other factions do we have? Uh, oh yeah. I, got so, another, well, no, I, I just got so many questions now. I'm like, so I'll, I'll rapid fire the other two. The, the next two are the iron guard. They're the dwarves. The dwarves are basically a business empire. They don't mm-hmm. have necessarily citizens. They have employees. Um, and <laughs> they are the undisputed masters of mining. And they were really one of the figureheads of the entire global economy of Rivenstone shards and other goods. And so when the storm happened and it blew everything up, it's been catastrophic to their profits. And so now they're coming back and going, okay, everyone's going nuts. Everyone's doing the the rush on the toilet paper during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit more, it's, it's super fuel. So it's a little bit more dangerous. So we're, we lay claim to all the world's Rivenstone. We're going to mine it, and then we're going to get it to you at good rates. It's going to be safely processed and safely harvested. There'll be no more accidents, and we're just going to be on top of the food chain, but that's for everyone else's good and for our own profits and the same the same thing. And everyone's kind of like, no. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to negotiate with you with a flamethrower and see what you say then. So <laughs> that's the dwarves' approach, and the humans are the Shattered Empire. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on them because they've got some cool things going on. These are the descendants of the humans that caused the problem. They're the ones, the descendants of the augers that blew everything up. In the coming generations after they, the original human empire splintered into a bunch of different little small uh, city-states and kingdoms and so on. And some of the humans started being, started being born missing limbs. Instead of having an arm, mm-hmm. they would have an organic Rivenstone growth. And instead of having a leg, they might have Rivenstone growing out of their body. And everyone saw this as a blessing that Rivenstone was coming back. And so these stone touched became the heroes of the Shattered Empire. And so their technology over 400 years, they started building arcane prosthetics. They'll mm-hmm. have gigantic cyber arms that can only someone who's stone touched can use. And it literally will plug over the where the normal arm would be, where instead there's the crystal growth, and then it turns on. Like it they can powers power it up. With That's their awesome. And so 
when the storm finally comes apart, the shattered empire is the humans, the core humans are going back out into the world to reunite all their people to find basically the lost colonies and, and, and get everyone back together and, and, and rebuild their empire. They need Rivenstone to do that for their machines of war and their ammunition and uh, any number of things. And so they basically are like, Hey, we're trying to just get, our people back together. And so anyone else who's trying to take Rivenstone from us is literally an enemy of us and trying to, you know, strand or kill our people. And so we're just going to put you down because we have to try and bring everyone we can back into the mm. fold. So each group feels like they're doing it for the right reason, but they're all willing to kill over it. And that's sort of the, the main conflict piece. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. So right off the bat, then that was uh, four factions then. Yes, five with oh, wild and well, right. And wilds, whatever heroes you pick, it's more individuals. Like the first, the first hero coming out with wild is a giant. It's called a, a terrestrial fiend. It's a giant earth elemental. Mm-hmm. It is what happens when too much Rivenstone grows too close to each other. The ground animates and becomes sentient and starts rampaging. And so the hero you can play is just a force of nature. It, it's you know its agenda with Rivenstone is that it is Rivenstone and it's just trying to kill things. But future wild heroes will have their own, you know, stories. Okay. Okay. Man. So, you know, I guess one thing, I, as I'm listening to this, um, you know, I, I have uh, two friends that are very different gaming backgrounds and kind of pedigrees. And uh, one's a little bit more into the competitive scene of things. And one's much more casual. And actually, it was the, the one who was casual sent me, first brought this game to my attention. It actually sent me one of the, the Oryx uh, pictures and was like, look at this miniature. And then mm-hmm. he started talking about it. And then my uh, the, the friend is more competitive in games started to kind of dig more and get sort of take his opinions on things and start to be interested in the game. And, and it got me kind of thinking like, so who do you see as like the primary audience for this game? Uh, are you looking at this as more of a game that's for people trying to enter the hobby or are you shooting more for like competitive play? Um, you know, where do you see Rivenstone? Where would you hope to see it situated maybe on that spectrum, even if it's sort of like a false, like s- social construct I made there, but yeah, you know, no, no, I totally you get see the, the audience. Um, the game is balanced well enough and the rules are tightly written so that it can blee blee. It can be played competitively. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not our focus. Mm-hmm. Um, we will not be putting out competitive rules for Ribbonstone. If the community wants to create their own tournament organized play pack, they're welcome to, and the game definitely can be. I mean, between Faye and I both, you know, working on War Machine for so long, we're very familiar with competitive war games and and in different ways to balance them. And I think we've made the game as tight as we possibly can because I believe a tight, well-balanced game actually makes it easier for a casual player to get in because they don't... Friend A doesn't buy a starter and friend B buys a starter. And then all of a sudden, like, friend B's starter is just so much more powerful than (laughs) it is. And they're like, I don't want to play this game because, you know, this is fun. So we we strove for that balance. um, But our efforts are fully on being inclusive to as many people as we can get into the hobby and playing the game. Our first organized play is going to be, you know, uh, a a wide like narrative event where people can come in. You can play traditional one V one, like more competitive style. There'll be asymmetrical scenarios you can play. That's where that first, the co-op raid mode introduced in organized play. Man. Um, I think our focus is, is definitely on our owners at broken anvil are Mm -hmm. very casual uh, gamers, mm-hmm. very casual war gamers. Um, they enjoy it, but they do, they, they're not into the competitive tournament scene. And I think one of the things I'm always kind of doing is making sure I'm making a game for them and that right. the kind of game that they will sit down and enjoy playing with their friends. I feel like where we're going to end up is sort of in that. I mean, 
I look at games like MCP, I look at games like mm-hmm. Star Wars Legion, I look at games like, you know, even um, Malifaux and a few others that I see played in, in a wide variety where it does definitely get played competitively. Yeah. But there, I know so many people that just pick up the models and have fun with it. And I feel like that's where we're going to end up with where someone in the community is going to make a, a their version of, uh, you know, a, a GT pack or a steamroller pack. Yep. They're going to, they're going to go with it and cool, you know, go nuts, but you never, I don't think you're ever going to see the broken anvil world championship tournament. For but it's like, you've like got that. enough of a foundation, a strong enough foundation here where you've got so much potential to take us in a lot of directions. Um, you know, I'm just even thinking about, uh, you know, someone who might approach the game is like, I just want to play cool uh, miniatures. Yeah. It sounds like they could probably make that work in their forces here. They can. And uh, for people that really want to do, be more competitive and, and have a, a, you know, much more narrow approach to it. Um, you know, there's room for that too. And I think that's a, that's a really great mindset that you have here for uh tabletop war game. Because sometimes I also think about like, you know, how, how does a game, um, a game like this, like help expand and introduce new people into the hobby, right? Like it, what's that jump in? Um, because, you know, these can be a bit of an investment uh, relative, you know, maybe not to, you know, all hobbies, but you, you, you spend time and yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's the time painting the miniatures and making everything, you know, uh, putting all that love and care into it. Um, and I think there's some really interesting like modeling opportunities um, with the miniatures you have here too. Um, yeah. And, you know, could you also speak about, like, so what are you doing with the um, the resin uh, miniatures that you have here? Um, you know, can you speak at all to how you are maybe uh, taking things in a, in a forward direction by keeping things kind of low waste and trying to kind of uh, maybe innovate or go in a more innovative way with your uh, miniature production? Yeah, absolutely. And before I move on to that point, I do want to say, like, I agree with everything, like, what you were saying I think you kind of put it into words maybe a little bit better than I did is that, you know, the main focus <clears throat> wargaming can be really hard to get into. I've been doing it for so long. And I've had so many friends that just don't touch it. It's just, they're like, I don't want to build things and put them together and paint them. And then I have to learn all these very complex rules. And then my army gets outdated and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it's something we always have in mind at Riven. So we wanted something where you can always jump on and just paint eight models and have a good time. There's some games on the market right now that do that really, really well. You know, like mm-hmm. Marvel Crisis Protocol is amazing at that and stuff like that. And I think, I think, in my opinion, a lot of modern war games are going to succeed with this approach of just being allow allow someone to kind of onboard very easily at any time, hold their hand a little bit, and then the hardest thing becomes just learning how to paint. And even then, you know. It's not, it's, you know, even if you paint badly, at least you painted a, a model and you can play with it. Um, and, and people will learn the hobby as they go. Nobody starts off being great, but a lot of people get intimidated by it and the sheer amount they have to paint. So that's another reason it's a skirmish game. You think that, um, like, you, you just mentioned some games that maybe have really big IPs, right? That are like immediately, um, people will be all, all familiar with from pop culture or other things. Um, yeah. you know, in what ways do you think maybe having you created your own world here, the world of Venn, um, how does that, um, you know, free you up in a lot of ways, right? So maybe it doesn't have that initial uh, brand recognition, um, but, you know, do you see the, what do you see as like, you know, with your experience as a game designer, a, a, a developer, like how do you see, um, you know, this may be paying dividends in the long run for you? It's, they both have pros and cons. When you work on an established IP, obviously you have these mega characters to pull from. 
and as you know, I've done game design and a few different things, especially when I was, you know, working on War Machine, there's characters, you have to make them feel how they're supposed to feel. And that can be right. really fun and rewarding. You know, if you're, we're talking about Marvel Crisis Protocol or Star Wars. You know, if somebody makes a Darth Vader miniature, it, when you play Darth Vader, Darth Vader needs to feel like Darth Vader. Darth Vader yeah. shouldn't be doing like you know, shooting <laughs> blasters and, and, you know, right. throwing thermal detonators. That's not right. Um, <laughs> so that can be really rewarding to be like when someone plays on the table and they're like, oh man, I really feel like this is this is that. Mm -hmm. The the that's a cool pro. The pro of of not being associated with IP is that the sky's the limit. We can do whatever weird thing pops into our head and whatever we feel fits the world. And it's sort of just like, you know, we, we have a vision of where we're going over the next several years, but if someone comes up that has a really cool idea, we can just integrate that. We can just make a new character and expand the world and, and make a new model. And as you know, we, we get better at manufacturing and sculpting, maybe new technology comes along. We can just integrate that. We can just do mm -hmm. that in, in any weird way we want to. Um, and so, that's the pro of that is just that 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 true open freedom. The con is that you just got to make sure your ideas are good and that mm -hmm. you're not making things that are so weird that nobody wants them. Um, but that's part but, of the that's also part of like the fun of the hobby. I was always that kid who like bought all like the lore books. Like my copy of uh, Rogue Trader is just like all dog eared and like as a kid, it's just like I just <laughs> look at the cool pictures like over and like and you know, God, I think with the Rogue Trader, I probably played it like three times it wasn't until the next edition uh was the second edition that I actually like started really yeah. playing but i yeah. just like spent so much time like in the world and just being like wow like um and even you know war machine i have like you know bought some, you know the hardback uh lore books for my faction and it's like i want to know about yeah. circle like oh man or this that and uh you know uh it's cool i think one thing i'm really excited about as well is looking over the the rivenstone stuff is like it's getting in the game when it's like at the ground level is like you get to be part of yeah. the story as it grows. And like that actually makes it a little more digestible too, where I can be like, I can, I can keep up with like things as it's going. Like um, it, the, the freedom of the the creative freedom is a lot of fun. You know, I just remember we were building the world out and, and we were like, okay, this area needs to be plains and kind of a mountain. And we're, we're actually building the world map. And we got to this one kingdom and we were kind of bouncing back ideas and we're like, how the Riven, like the, one of the questions I was always, how does Rivenstone and Rivenstorm, how did it affect them? Mm -hmm. And they're built around a bay and we're like, what if they were completely, you know, seafaring culture, but they no longer had access to water and they had to change over 400 years. And it's like, so what happened to the water? And it's like, what if the water turned to glass where they were? And so we did that story where this Strostholm, this one kingdom, their bay of water just turned completely to glass. And so as they come up, they've become the region's dominant glass makers and glass blowers. They completely adapted to it. Like if people need glass for scopes on a rifle mm -hmm. or for windows, they're providing it. But then we started thinking of these cool illustrations. And this none, none of this is going to be in game. This is all just the lore building, yeah. lore building of like, man, what does a glass mine look like? Because oh, they go in yeah. the bay and they dig down and they have these giant glass mines. And it's like, you can see out the whole time. You could be 300 feet down. Oh, um, that's crazy. In the glass mine. Yeah. And then like, what happens when the sun comes out? What if you <laughs> feet down in the glass mine and the sun's out? Like, what is that? Do you just cook? <laughs> and so these all sound like crazy ideas, but that's really one of the rewarding and fun parts of the design aspects is when you're, you're not associated with an IP, the, this is the, the flip side is that you can just go, you can have these crazy conversations and then come up with just really cool ideas that end up going somewhere. And then one day, you know, even a Strauss home is an faction. We're establishing their lore. We could have a wild mercenary 
who's like, you know, a glassmancer, for lack of a better term, who comes out and we've established that story and it helps us create something cool and new and weird. And I think that's that's rewarding and fun. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And thinking about like having the room to try and innovate and do new things, you know, as you're now at uh, Rook and Anvil uh, Miniatures, uh, you know, so how are you uh, working to innovate with the actual miniatures themselves and, and the production of that? Yes, let us get back to that question. Uh, no, Please I don't want to took us off the side thing. I got, I got, a, I got, a, I get too excited here. I've got a million things raised in my head. So, you know, obviously I'm, as a game designer and uh, in developer, my knowledge of the production side is is limited. I, mm-hmm. I can't really answer super technical questions, but the miniatures are being produced in COCast, uh, COCast Hard specifically. Mm-hmm. People have probably heard about COCast. You may have even gotten some of the miniatures before. They've appeared in Infinity and a few other uh, products. Um, it's a new type of resin. It's like a thermo resin, for lack of a, a better term. Um, it's very, you can make a lot of miniatures very quickly with this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very durable. It's, it's going to have the same consistency and, and, and durability as resin on the higher end on like the harder end resin. So not like soft PVC style or anything like that. Um, and the cool thing is, so when it comes out of the machine, it comes out on sprues. We clip it off the sprue. So when you receive your miniatures, you're going to receive them off sprue. They're going to be in little baggies. You know, you'll you'll keep them together and assemble them. But the sprues get recycled back into the machine. And then they become material for the next batch of sprues that come out. So basically, there's very little to no waste in the actual resin material. It keeps being reused. Yeah. So it's super, you know, eco-friendly in that, that case. I think that's really, really cool. And if you haven't heard of SEOcast, it's S-I-O cast um for anybody listening um go look it up and i there's probably some games you, you may be playing right now or thinking about playing it, it's growing in popularity i think you're going to see co cast more and more as we we move forward uh it's also due to its costs it's very beneficial for smaller startup companies mm-hmm. to be able to sort of get into large-scale manufacturing at the uh, a reasonable cost that might not have been you know, previously possible with, you know, uh, traditional spin cast techniques and stuff like that. And well, I'm, I'm really excited for this game. Now, <clears throat> if people miss the Kickstarter, I think the Kickstarter is delivering between now and June is it yes. roughly, you know, and Kickstarter, there's always, you know, I, I'm afraid to throw it, make you put any dates specifically when we're still living in an era where like global supply chains can get crazy and all sorts of things can happen. But, um, uh, you know, but that's, you know, coming soon. Um, yeah. and then, um, then people will be start maybe be able to get the stuff in stores or maybe buy it directly through broken anvil miniatures. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, we're trying to support it. I would say anybody who's listening, who's like, this sounds cool. I want to check it out. Just go, actually, if you just go look Riverstone Kickstarter, you'll find the old Kickstarter page. It's still up there. But it has links to all the stuff that we had been building up to. So you can get a pre-release rule book, so you can read the rules. Mm-hmm. It's got links to all the blogs I had written, which sort of like walked people through different aspects of the game. More importantly, you can see all the miniatures. You can see all the miniatures fully painted. You can get a look at costs and how much starter is and individual models and everything. Uh, more granular detail than we're going to go on yeah. this podcast. But if you just go find the Riverstone Kickstarter page, it's still there. And you can just read everything you need about the game and, and all yeah. that stuff. And I think, you know, a few other things I just want to plug for people listening and considering it and things that have really been interesting to me um, is, you know, A, the smaller model count. It makes it really convenient. Uh, but second of all, you know, through COVID, we we sort of picked up more of a board game group as well. And uh, it, still, it was kind of balkanized. And, like, there was, like, my tabletop board gaming group and, like, my board gaming group. And they're starting to merge together. And one of the big things was, like, table space. 
Um, and yeah. you know, if we were going to play at people's homes, you know, a, a six by four, uh, not going to happen. But when we start being like, you know, hey, well, hey, this game looks really interesting. Like, what do we think? Are we willing to try? Like, okay, great. We have enough people who know war games that could help out. And it's like a three by three. Yeah. Like everybody's able to find that space in their homes, at least in our groups. And we're just like, hey, you know, I think we can do this. Let's all jump in. Um, and, uh, you know, the smaller miniature count, three by three. And, you know, uh, I, uh, many of us have faith in the uh, the <laughs> experience of the lead game designers. And we're like, well, we're hungry. Like, we know that name. Like, let's do this. Uh, so, you know, no pressure now, I'm just saying. And, but, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I do want to say, not just like, so when I came on to Broken Anvil, yeah. uh, uh, William Oz Schoonover, Oz, mm-hmm. as most people know him, he had started Rivenstone and then okay. he ended up going to Steve Jackson games, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's sort of where I started his career. So I'm mm-hmm. really cool to see him start and then kind of go full circle. Um, so this game is like co-designed by Oz. Okay. So if you like Oz and I's things, Monster Apocalypse, War Machine, those kind yeah. of games. That, I see that that would be the touchstones people would know us for. Yeah. Then you're going to have fun with the game. And one thing I realized we haven't mentioned about the miniatures, we're talking about three by three space. Yeah. Uh, is the scale of the miniatures. Um, these are 35 millimeter heroic. So they big chunky miniatures. So uh, when you look at them, you know, I don't, you, I don't you think RPG size, 25 mils. Mm-hmm. When you look at Good one of the orcs, they're huge. Um, as, as they think, should be, as they should be. <laughs> like, I, I think a common touchstone most people would know would be a space Marine Primaris, right? A primary okay. space Marine from a 40 K the standard orc soldier is larger than a Primaris. And that's a follower model. So that gives you an nice. idea of just the, the scale of how big the miniatures will be in game. Okay. Well, well, fantastic. Uh, and so if they want to check out more about this game, certainly they want to like on Facebook, uh, uh, Rivenstone um, is, has got a page there. Broken Anvil Miniatures, the main website there, also has some background articles that do a little bit of lore deep dives. And uh, and where can they maybe follow you on social media to keep up to date on what you're working on? The uh, best place to follow me personally is on Twitter, uh, at WNHungerford. Um, check me out there. And then, yeah, there's an at Rivenstone game on Twitter, Facebook group. There's a fan group. Um and we're also on Discord. There's a public Broken Anvil Discord where you can come chat about Rivenstone or any of the other projects going on. So come check us out there too. Perfect. And thanks so much for coming on. I'm I'm excited to explore the world more and uh, yeah. yeah, get me some some shards. Now you got me just thinking about like what a glass mine would look like. Though I'm gonna be thinking about <laughs> so weird. that the whole time. I'm like, ah, oh, what would that be? Yeah. Um, but yeah, cool. so we're gonna we'll wrap things up here. And uh, you know, if you've got questions, leave them in the comments below. And we can investigate or we can touch back with with Will about and uh, let us know what you think of the game and what you're most excited about. And in the meantime, hope we get your miniatures on the table.